everyone, to episode five of Healthy Mind Fit Body Podcast. This is Wes, and I have Kevin on the other line on Skype once again. Hey, Kevin. Hey, guys. What's going on, Wes? Not too much. I think our last show turned out pretty well, even though we had a few Skype issues, but uh, this one should be pretty good, too. And, you know, last week we covered the issue of saturated fat, and that, of course, is a much maligned thing in our culture. And if you look at the diet section in the bookstore, you find all kinds of different books on all kinds of different diets saying that this is good for you, that's bad for you, and so on and so forth. So isn't it amazing how people can write so many different guidelines on how to eat and proper nutrition? And you wonder if it's true. How do you determine what's true and what's not? Yeah, yeah, and that was the topic I kind of came up with yesterday. I was at Borders Bookstore, and I was just kind of cruising around the nutrition or the health section and just found so many diet books. I mean, I haven't been to a bookstore in a while. I like to shop online at Amazon and things like that, but I just was blown away at how many diet books there are. And it seems like there's always kind of the ones up in the front that are the trendy, the latest trend ones, and then there's... New York Times bestsellers. Yeah, the bestsellers. And then you've got um, just rows and rows of different takes on nutrition and fitness. And so I just looked at it and I'm like, that's confusing for me. I mean, I wouldn't know where to go. I mean, which book do you grab? I mean, it's amazing. So I picked up a few books. I picked up a couple of the trendy ones and I got some ones that I thought were kind of along the lines of the way I look at nutrition. And then I got, uh, you know, a couple other ones that were just kind of random. Mm-hmm. You know, every book has the answer and they have all the studies to back it up, right? And then it's interesting. One thing that I found is that a lot of the books that are I would consider trendy like to constantly point out that uh, we should all ignore and avoid trendy diets. And they point out typically the low-carb diets like the Atkins, Zone, and South Beach diet. So it's funny because uh, those books, what people consider low-carb diets... I don't see them slamming all the other diets on the market. No, the criticism laid against them is the fact that they're fad diets, that they just come and go. But the people that are accusing them of these things are typically in the mainstream, and they've been advocating a diet or way of eating that has led to virtually an epidemic of obesity and overweightness in America and some other places throughout the world. So they don't really have a good vantage point from which to criticize, you know? Yeah, the tough thing is, though, they do a lot of these books, you know, I looked at their mainstream books, they do point out studies and research that's been done. And they have all kinds of notations. And it looks pretty good. I mean, it looks like they've done their homework and um, looks like they know what they're talking about. Yeah, I mean, what would be an example of one that would be heavily noted by the mainstream as the way to go? Because what we do see a lot is vegetarian, vegan as a much more preferable way to eat than the typical American diet. Right. And that's right there. When you said that, it's like you're comparing a specific diet to the typical American diet, which any diet is probably better. Anything where you're actually watching what you eat is going to be better than the typical American diet, which is, you know, pretty much crap. Yeah, and as we were talking before the show, that a vegetarian vegan diet does have some healthy attributes, namely that you're eating a lot of vegetables. Right. And hopefully you're eating a lot of nuts, too, to get your fat, because uh, you're not going to be able to get any fat, really, from many vegetables, uh, other than, you know, like we were talking last week about coconuts, and avocados would be another one. What other sorts of plant-based fats can one find? 
I guess the oils, uh, olive oil and yeah. all those types of fats are really helpful for having good cardiovascular health and good overall health. Right, right. So there are some benefits to when you talk about vegetarianism and vegans and things like that. Since they're eating a ton of vegetables, they're going to get the benefits from the vegetables. But I think pretty much most diet plans do have vegetables as important food items. So that's not really unique to any specific diet. But yeah, it seems like the latest ones, I picked up the book uh, Skinny Bitch. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it was an interesting read. I didn't uh, read the whole thing, but I read a lot of it. And it's, it's written at about the third grade level, I'd say. Uh, a lot of spaces, huge font, and uh, a lot of swearing. So I think they're trying to give the idea that they're down to earth and they're on your level. And, uh, you know, anyone can understand this. It's easy. So as far as the book goes, I didn't care for the tone. It was kind of insulting. I mean, she goes out of her way to insult her readers, which is, I think, supposed to be funny, but I don't see, I don't see that being a really good strategy. It's kind of a tough love approach, I guess, huh? It is. Yeah, exactly. I think they even say that, tough love. But And the one catered to us, I guess, is Skinny Bastard. So. That's right. And that just came out. So yeah, Skinny Bastard. But they have some good points. They talk about you know avoiding sugar and how bad sugar is for you. And that's great. And they talk about, you know, having an independent mind and not believing the FDA. It's like the worst thing you can do is just take whatever the FDA says as fact. Mm -hmm. And it pretty much turns out that most of what the FDA says is, (laughs) it's actually the opposite. They talked about the studies that the FDA did on um, NutraSweet Mm -hmm. and how completely flawed and bought out that whole thing was and how they actually, the FDA turned down NutraSweet as a sweetener seven times and then suddenly they approved it. And, uh, you know, there's a whole lot of corporatism going on there and all kinds of bad things. So basically, um, you know, just read the ingredients on your foods and don't depend on anyone else. So that was a good message. But uh, then they talk about the low-carb fads and how we should all avoid that and how ridiculous they all are and how it's obvious that it didn't work. So move on. And now, you know, they're recommending no meat. So uh, they support the vegan diet. And that's, you know, they say the only way to go. Um, And also, I think they want to come across as like, oh, this is so simple and everything. But they were being really restrictive. I mean, they said, you know, one of the chapters is on drinking coffee and, you know, stay away from coffee completely. Mm -hmm. It's horrible for you. And then they said, the best thing you can do is just get decaf tea. That's the only way to go. And I don't know if the studies have shown, I mean, I've read a lot of studies that have shown that caffeine is actually in small doses can actually be good for you. So, you know, I think there's a little bit of, um, it's pretty restrictive in terms of what they're advocating. Not to mention all the antioxidants that are in coffee, as well as, say, green tea. Right. And even with the caffeine, you're still getting all the antioxidants. It seems to me that, and I picked up another book that's pretty mainstream by Joel Furman. Yeah, the one called Eat to Live. Eat to Live, yeah. The Revolutionary Formula for Fast and Sustained Weight Loss. Right. And that's another one that supports the idea of the vegan diet. Mm -hmm. And uh, the first thing that I saw cited was a study called the China study. And I did some quick research on that on the internet. And it looks like the China study was pretty flawed. I mean, there's a lot of problems with it. They didn't really have a lot of data. They didn't actually prove what he says that they proved. So the point of all this is that there's just a lot of confusion out there because all these books they look on the surface like they have great information and it's all scientifically proven. But when you start digging into it, 
you know, a lot of these studies are just not even, they're flawed. It's not something that you can even trust. So even though there's the little annotation, the little number where you can flip to the back of the book and it seems like, you know, how could it be wrong if they put that in? Mm -hmm. Some of them are wrong. Yeah, I think one of the most important things to consider in the realm of nutrition is confirmation bias. People are looking for what they want to find and so they only find what they're looking for. And they're disregarding any sort of falsifying evidence. And one thing that you and I have stressed is to look and make sure that what you're saying is actually validated by the facts. And if you come across new facts that could invalidate what you're saying, to inspect that and make sure that you're on the right track. Because that's the only way you can really be objective in this process. Now granted, most people can't spend all their time in a medical library and looking through all these different journals. Because if you try to look at these things online, they say, oh, you got to pay us $35 to look at this one article. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's amazing. Even though most of these articles are generated uh, at the taxpayer's expense through these research facilities, they do a double whammy. And so you can only access them if you have a college campus Wi-Fi network or something like that, where you can get access based on the university system. So it's hard to find anything more than just the abstracts, but if you just look at the abstracts, you can kind of get a feel for, you know, the way that scientists look at things. This may or may not be contributing to this. You know, the evidence tends to point in this direction because you're dealing with just a select sample of people and you have all these different confounding variables that are hard to really pin down. I mean, the best studies are going to be controlled studies and they're going to be, you know, random samples of people chosen according to specific criteria. But especially with nutrition studies, it's hard to get compliance with the subjects to make sure that they're eating exactly what the study says they should be eating, right, in each different group. So more stringent studies will be the ones that have the subjects eat food that they're being given by the study that the, the researchers themselves are giving them the meals uh, rather than having the subjects determine what they're supposed to eat based on that criteria. So if you look at the dynamics how the studies are done, it's important to look at all those different factors and find out exactly, okay, is this a really a valid, reliable source for the evidence? Or is it just another thing to you know make a mental note of and compare and contrast it with the other studies that you find? Right. And even in that Skinny Bitch book, they talk about doing your own research. And I think that's really important because we have internet access. You can find the truth about things pretty quickly. I mean, you can do a couple of Google searches and uh, get to the bottom of it. Well, at least we could get to the starting point of the bottom of it because, like I said, usually in the actual studies, you can just find the abstracts. Right. And I'm going to go to the library sometime this week to ferret out the nature of this one study, Carbohydrate Quantity and Quality in Relation to Body Mass Index. And it's done by this researcher who recommends a high-carb, low-fat diet as the end-all, be-all for weight loss, or at least managing your body mass index. And the body mass index is fraught with problems too because they don't take into account uh, body fat measurement or the muscle mass either. Do you think if I wanted to, could I find a, a study that supports the idea that eating donuts is uh, really healthy and will help me stay fit? You know, I, th I think this guy actually recommends that in the article. I'll have to look at the study, but I'm sure there is a study we could do to validate donut consumption. Awesome. Would you prefer the glazed donuts or just the, like, uh, the ones that are frosted on the top? Oh, I think I'm going to go chocolate old-fashioned. Chocolate old-fashioned, yeah. 
Yeah. It actually reminds me of uh, when I was in college and I was doing a lot of swimming. One time we had a Saturday morning workout and my friend and I decided to go to the donut shop, which was kind of a tradition after the Saturday workouts. Usually we had a, a group, but that morning it was just the two of us. And we ended up getting a, a dozen donuts. And we sat there and uh, we looked at each other and we, of course, said, well, can we finish the whole thing? And so then it was a challenge. And then uh, and so said, we had to only, finish. Only if we get a gallon of orange juice to wash it down. <laughs> no, no, nothing. Not even water. So we sat there and pounded six donuts each. Nice. Yeah, I thought it was okay because I just swam like 10,000 yards. So what's the big deal, right? Yes. Well, the big deal in that regard is that you uh, secreted a whole bunch of insulin to deal with all those donuts. <laughs> And if yeah. you the uh, the deep fried donuts, they've got lots of uh, fat in them too, which is a double whammy. You don't want to be eating a lot of carbs with a lot of fat because... Uh, it's probably the single worst food you can eat, right? Donuts. I mean, they've got just about everything wrong with them. Very well could be. Um, so donuts are okay in moderation. A donut <laughs> once in a while, you know, every 10 years, a donut, that's fine. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so I've had my fill for my life, I think. But there are a lot more healthy things to eat, obviously. And uh, that's kind of the point of our book, Healthy Mind, Fit Body. We go through a detailed account of what actually is the most beneficial way to be eating and coming to terms with that mentally, like this psychological process. Because it seems like most people that are advocating this diet, that diet, sticking to their particular point of view, aren't really receptive to new evidence or aren't really willing to change the way they think about things. So they get stuck in a mental rut in that regard. Yeah, it goes back to my point I was making before the show that people get married to their ideas. Mm -hmm. And I, I tried really hard not to marry my ideas because, I mean, for years I thought low-fat, high-carb was the best way to go. And that's what was drilled into my head. I did too, actually. Yeah. So once I read the new studies that were being done on the low-carb diets, I decided to try it. And then what do you know? It worked. So I changed my mind on that topic. But I find that a lot of people just get stuck. It's almost like a religion where they get stuck on one thing and that's it. And the low-fat thing seems to be the one that has stuck with a lot of people. Yeah. And with the vegan vegetarian crowd, no meat. Meat is bad, especially beef. And I just wonder what those people would think when they're faced with the evidence of that one study that Johnny Bowden mentions in Living the Low-Carb Life, where these two researchers were so curious about what beef consumption would do to the human body that they essentially lived in a hospital for an entire year and ate nothing but beefsteak <laughs> for an entire year. Wow. And, of course, they both died at the end, but that's beside the <laughs> point, right? Right. <laughs> no, actually, at the end of the study, drum roll, they were both healthy. Wow. Uh, as a matter of fact, the guy that did not trim the fat off the beef was the healthiest, and he was fine. There was actually no negative effects from eating beef for a whole year other than sheer boredom, I would imagine. Right. It reminds me of the Lewis and Clark expedition when they ended up either in Washington or Oregon. And they essentially ran out of their supplies, and all they really had to eat was elk steak. And in the journals, I was watching, it was on a PBS show, they were basically narrating through the journals with the entries, and one of the guys was like, you know, we have elk for breakfast, we have elk for lunch, elk for dinner. <laughs> it will be way too soon if I ever see elk again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But of course, that was a good diet for them too. It's equivalent to like grass-fed beef. Right. Elk. Uh, wild game meat is especially good for you because of the uh, the spectrum of amino acids and the, the essential fatty acids that are in that. 
So yeah, one thing that's important to mention with the people that have an axe to grind against low-carb diets and higher-fat diets and so forth is they have a certain genetic constitution and they may be able to eat tons of carbs and never show any external adverse aspects to that, you know, any negative aspects to eating high carbs, at least externally. Internally, they're having higher insulin levels, obviously, by eating a lot more carbs. But it goes to the point that Barry Sears made in his books that there's a spectrum of people that deal with carbohydrates in various ways. And about a quarter of the people out there can eat carbohydrates in abundance and never put on any excess fat. That's about a quarter of the population. On the other end of the continuum, about another quarter will eat carbohydrates and put on a lot of fat as a result of that. And about the middle half will put on some love handles and excess weight the more carbs that they eat. So just because someone is promoting a diet doesn't mean that that diet is healthy because they look healthy. So again, all that extra insulin secretion, what is that doing to your cardiovascular system and your immune system and all these things? So that's an important factor to consider. Yeah, and we get into that in the book, in the Healthy Mind Fit Body book. We talk a lot about, you know, the good foods and the bad foods and what makes up a good diet and how you can do that and still enjoy yourself. Sorting through the fact and the fiction, right? Exactly. And I was going to say that can be found at healthymindfitbody.com. So we also have a brand new website that we just released a couple days ago. Good place to put your comments in and you can follow us on Twitter from there and yeah, all kinds of good stuff. Yeah, it's easier to navigate than the old one, I think. And you can just, uh, you can separate the blog from the podcast if you want to read the blogs that we've put in there and the podcast show notes and so forth. And the last few tweets that I did were uh, from a video that I watched by Gary Tobbs, and he gets into some of the uh, metabolic factors in obesity. And I think that uh, that lends quite a bit of credibility to the evidence that shows that insulin is the key hormone in fat storage and inability to lose fat. Obviously, if you cut your calories down a certain amount, you will lose something. But if you look at the isocaloric studies that they've done in regard to different macronutrient constitution, you'll see that the, uh, and these are the ones that Atkins references as well as Barry Sears in the zone, but you'll see that the low carb, higher fat percentage diets are the ones where the fat comes off faster, significantly more than the ones that have more insulin in, in the uh, bloodstream. So anyway, the scientific aspects behind good nutrition are really important, but also just as important are the psychological factors and why a person would stick to a diet that isn't good for them. They don't believe there's any other diet that's better than that. You know, that's important to really understand that there is a way of looking at nutrition that is taking into account all of the evidence and trying to falsify all the claims made by all kinds of people, including many who have lots of letters behind their name. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like dietitians and nutritionists and doctors and so forth like to put all those letters behind their name to somehow give them more authority. But the proof is in the pudding and what exactly the facts show on the issue. And is that study a definitive study about the nature of human metabolism? I mean, a lot of the studies have been done on mice. And that really doesn't translate well into humans a lot of the time. I know from my diabetes perspective, mice have been cured of diabetes every which way to Sunday. But humans have not. Yeah. So it's important to look at the different you know, anatomy and physiology of mice and humans and understand that even though a mouse study says this, it doesn't necessarily scale up to humans, right? Exactly. 
So you want to wrap it up? Yeah, I think that should just about wrap up the show. Again, you can download the book at healthymindfitbody.com. Just click on uh, book and you can go there and purchase a copy. And if you like this show, please go to the show notes for this show and click on the link to iTunes and you can go ahead and put in a comment and give us a rating. Yeah, you can rate and review the show. And uh, again, feel free to add comments in the show notes too so we can uh, get some feedback because uh, we do like to focus on those three main pillars, nutrition and the motivation factor and the psychological factor, the emotional aspects to that too. So you can get that bonus audio we have on the uh, the homepage of the website. Just fill in that little opt-in form. You'll get that bonus audio where we talk about those three pillars concerning achieving your perfect weight through the mind-body connection because this is a mental process as well as a physiological process. Exactly. All right, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. All right, thanks, guys. Talk to you next week. It's all-